will God help me? I think whatever we're facing, uh, we're going through all kinds of different forms of uh, suffering or affliction or difficulty or hard times. We wonder, will God help me? And the answer yet is yes. But you have to wonder, what if, what if I am, what, what if I'm suffering because I've done something wrong? Or what if I'm, what if I'm going through a hard time because, because I, I, really, I really brought this upon myself? I mean, after all, I, I did it. In other words, will God help me even though I'm a sinner? The answer is yes. God is ready to help every person who humbles themselves before him. God is near to the needy. God is ready to help all those who cry out to him. God is ready to help the humble. That's what I hope you'll see today. We're all going to face hard times. Sometimes they are more directly the result of our own wrongdoing, and sometimes they're not. We're all going to face difficult times. We're all going to face affliction. We're all going to go through suffering. It's gonna, life is sometimes hard for everybody. And God is ready to help. God is ready to help all those who humble themselves before him. Uh, today we're going to be in 2 Samuel 15. Starting in 2 Samuel 15. 2 Samuel 15. And what we'll see first is God-ordained rebellion against God's king. God ordained rebellion against God's king. We're at 2 Samuel 15. 2 Samuel 15. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. 2 Samuel 15, verses 1 through 12. God ordained rebellion against God's king. This is what it says. Starting with verse 1. 2 Samuel 15, verse 1. It says, After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand before the way of the gate. When any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I was in Geshur and Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I'll offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they, were in their, they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was suffering, offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, Adam's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Just kind of kept, keep, uh, catch you up to speed on what's been going on. Um, in 2 Samuel 
chapter, chapter 11, David sins by committing adultery and murder. And as a result, uh, God, God decrees or God ordains or God determines that evil is going to come out of, out of David's own household as a response, as the consequences for David's sin. Now, David is forgiven of his sin, but that doesn't take away all the consequences. And so in 2 Samuel 10, I'm um, sorry, 2 Samuel 12, verses 10 through 12, God says to David, because you have despised the word of the Lord, because you have scorned the Lord utterly, I'm going to raise up evil from out of your own house to punish you, to discipline you. It's going to be a part of your life the rest of your days. And those verses pretty much control or direct the next several chapters, all the chapters 13 through 20. It's all about evil being raised up in response to David's sin, being raised up out of his own household as discipline. Now, in chapter 13, you start to see all these things start to take place. Uh, Absalom, who is David's son, uh, has, a, has a sister, and Abnon, David's son, uh, takes Tamar, Absalom's sister, and he violates her. In response, Absalom uh, in, uh, con- con- puts together this conspiracy. He calculates and, and murders Amnon, and then he runs, and the whole time David does nothing with, with Absalom. David does worse than nothing. He receives this murderer back home, and so he receives this murderer back home to be a prince in David's house, even though he has committed murder. And that's when you get to chapter 15, verse 1, it says, after this, after David sinned, after God responded to his sin, after God began to bring about all the consequences for David's sin, after this, Absalom bought some ponies and uh, got 50 men to run alongside him. He is kind of, you have to remember from chapter 14, Absalom is the most handsome man in all the land. He is handsome from uh, head to foot, and he cuts a dashing figure uh, riding through town and in his, in his uh, ancient Israelite version of a sports car, and he's got, his, he's got his entourage with him, and he is building up his importance, and everybody, everybody is in love with with Absalom, he is, he is all over the place, and, and he, he, is, he is thinking about how do I, how do I even find a way to, uh, to, get, to get closer to the crown. And so he starts standing at the gate. That's kind of like standing in front of the courthouse. The gate was the place where people would come for, for judgment, to have people uh, rule, have, have elders of the city rule on their disputes. And, and Absalom starts hanging out there. Whenever he sees somebody coming forward for for, uh, for a, a case or a dispute of some sort, he says, hey, where, where are you from? Oh, I'm, I'm from, I'm from so-and-so, I'm from up in Dan, or I'm, I'm from over in Ephraim, or I'm from wherever. He's like, oh, man, how's, how's the fig harvest there? And how's, they still have that barbecued goat place out on so-and-so. I mean, you know, how you doing, buddy? How you doing, man? I, I, know, I know my way around the, the kingdom, and, and I, man, man, I, I just love that. I, I love your little town there, and uh, and then he says, then he says, so what you, what you here for? He says, well, you know, I, such and such, this is my case. And, oh, man, Absalom never heard a case, never heard anybody's case that he didn't go along with. He is the original people-pleasing politician. He is the epitome of the man who just tells people whatever they want to hear. Well, this guy says he's, he's been wronged. And, man, you... You've been wrong, man. You've been wrong. That's too bad. 
I just wish there were somebody, somebody around who could. Ju- if I, I would take that responsibility on myself, even if only I could, I would. I would judge for you. I would definitely judge for you. Absalom for a king. I'll judge for you. He's getting people this way. Says at the end of verse six that he. He stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He deceived them. Now, just like uh, many places uh, when we were looking at Absalom in chapters 13 and 14, people are fooled by appearances. In this case, they are especially fooled by flattery. Flattery is not trying to do what is good for people with your speech, which sometimes can take the form of encouragement. Sometimes it could take the form of, of correction. Sometimes it could just take the form of news. But you're trying to do, you're trying to do something good for people. Sometimes, sometimes that can be uh, maybe, maybe we think of as more positive. Sometimes we think of it as more negative. We can speak to people in various ways to try and help them. Flattery is not trying to help anybody. It's trying to help the person who's speaking. And Absalom, said, Absalom is a flatterer. He tells people what they want to hear so that they will join in with his cause. Now then, I don't want you to think that I'm talking about any particular politician or any particular politician of either party. I'm not even particularly talking about politicians at all. Our world is filled with flatterers. You see advertisements from flatterers. You hear political messages from flatterers. You, you work with flatterers. You might even live with some flatterers. You, you have people who are trying to tell you what they think you want to hear so that you will like them and do what they want you to do. Even see Absalom, this is the part I left out of it. He sees, he sees somebody and somebody bows down before him and, and pays homage to him. He, he doesn't stand upon ceremony. He grabs him, picks him up, and kisses him. It's like, like our equivalent of a hearty handshake and a hug and, man, we're, we're together. Sometimes we just fall for that. We for fall for appearances. Everybody should know who Absalom is. He's a vain, selfishly ambitious violent man and when he kisses you it's the kiss of death he's not he's not trying to help you he's trying to help himself and so the simple and the naive fall for flattery you don't be simple or naive or gullible you be wise and discerning spot people like Absalom require that people demonstrate character don't just believe their words see who they are don't judge by appearances when after he's done this for a while Absalom says to the king hey let me go down to Hebron this is a smart move Hebron was the place where David had been anointed as king so Absalom says hey I was he knows he knows how to he knows how to get in good with David you know when I was out in Gesher let me just remind you that I was banished to Gesher. Out when, I was, out when I was in Gesher, I vowed to the Lord. Y'all really had a change of heart when I was in Gesher. And I vowed to the Lord that if he let me come back, I would, I would pay my vows to him. I would worship him. And David says, 
isn't it good that I let Absalom come back? Isn't this a good idea? See how his heart's changed. And so he said, go in peace. And Absalom goes down, takes 200 people with him. These people, it says they go in their innocence, so they don't know exactly what they're going to do. But at the same time, they're going with Absalom, and they are lending credibility to Absalom's anointing. Maybe Absalom is trying to recruit them. Maybe he's going to try and convince them to join his side. He already has one star recruit, Ahithophel. This is like, this is like the, 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 the Kissinger or, or, or whatever, the, the, the brain inside the Davidic cabinet. This is the guy you want on your side. Well, Absalom's got him. And so Ab, uh, Ahithophel, the counselor of David, his, his, uh, his sort of the, the wisest man in all the, the land, the man who knows how to help Absalom, he's on Absalom's side. See what's happening here? Okay, I want you to think of a couple of different things. 1 Samuel 24 and 26. That's where David has the chance to kill Saul, who is the king. Now, David has been anointed as king. Saul is the king, and Saul is trying to kill David. David has these two chances to kill Saul. And in those two moments, David, David demonstrates and speaks that it is wrong for a man to take out his, to, to lift his hand against the, the Lord's anointed. If God makes the king the king, it's wrong for David to try to do something wrong to him. It's evil. It's wicked. It's wrong. It's wrong for a man to rebel against God's king. But then you also have something else. 2 Samuel 12, 10 through 12 God says, I will raise up from within your house the sword. I will raise up evil from your house. So how does, how does this, do you see where I'm going with this? There's something wrong that's happening, and God has ordained it. God has determined that it would happen. God, God what, what, what Absalom is doing is evil. It is wicked. It is wrong, and God ordains it. God determines it. God decides that it would be. Does that make you uncomfortable? If it makes you uncomfortable, I sympathize with you. Made me uncomfortable for, for a little while. Made me think, how, how, can, how can God ordain evil and also condemn what is evil? How can God ordain evil while still not being the author of evil? How can God ordain evil and still hold people who do evil responsible for the evil? That can be troubling. So I sympathize with you. I, the way I kind of think of it is that that's almost like the first stage of dealing with this truth. Just recognize the discomfort that we feel. Then, at some point, you have to get over it. That's almost something along the lines of what God says in Romans 9. He says, I'm the potter, you're the clay. I'm the creator, you're the creature. You, you, are, you are finite in your thinking, in your understanding, in your abilities. 
I am infinite. God is infinite. We, we, are, we, have, we are contained. We have limitations. God has no limitations. And so we have to come to the point where we say, God is who he is. And I can never say that who he is is not righteous or good. There's no reason to come up with, a, with, with some, uh, no, no reason to be angry with God, thinking that he's not righteous or good. There's no reason to come up with some anti-scriptural doctrine that says that no, no God, God can't ordain these things or God's not in control of these things. Instead, you just have to, some point, get over it. You have to deal with it. You have to say, God is God, and I, I am not God. I am, I am simply a creature. And then, beyond that, the final stage, the stage that I hope that we will all reach, is to worship God because He is Creator, because He is infinite, because Outside of our abilities, outside of our understanding, outside of our comprehension, God does things that we can't understand. If God did not do things that we can't understand, he would not be God. The idea of God who only fits within our capacities to understand is not God. He's just a blown up version, fictional, pers- uh, fictional creation of human beings that's just a blown up human being. He's just a bigger version of us. God is not a bigger version of us. God is utterly distinct and holy, different from us, in a category of his own, infinite, eternal. The Bible knows no discomfort with this. Look at, look at the, 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 the thoughts that we have of how could this be, they don't. The, the writer of 2 Samuel does not wrestle with them because there's no wrestling. It's just the truth. The rest of the Bible. Peter can put it in one sentence. Hold the two together in one sentence. Listen to Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Did God ordain what is evil? Was it, is it wrong for people to crucify the Lord Jesus Christ who is perfectly innocent and righteous? Absolutely. Did God plan it? Did God determine it? God, did God ordain it? Praise God he did. Are these men responsible for the blood that they've shed? Absolutely they are. And not only should we worship God. And and listen to what Paul says. Paul says, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. He is worshiping God. This is, this is a God that we cannot contain. This is a God without limitations. And yes, it is very, 
It can be frightening and uncomfortable and, and disturbing to think of being in the hands of a God who can do whatever he wants, he does whatever he pleases, and no one can say to him, you can't do that. Let's say you don't like the way that God is presented in the Bible. What are you going to do about it? You think God's going to go, oh, wow, these creatures I made, these human beings, they don't, they don't like it. I didn't really anticipate that. I didn't see that coming. And so now I need to go and, you know, do an ad campaign and try and kind of fit, fix my public image. God doesn't do that. God is God. And so who he is is who he is. And you can't understand him. You cannot contain him within the finite capacity of your brain, of your mind. And so worship that God is unsearchable. God is inscrutable. God is incomprehensible. God is infinite. Stay within yourself and say, God is infinite and I'm finite. And you know what? It is is a glad and comforting thing to know that God ordains evil. Because you know what else God does? He ordains the limitation of evil. He determines that there would be evil. And then he says, wait, this, this far and no further. He ordains evil and he restrains evil. And what's more, when you look at the the world, when you think about the world that we live in, for an unbeliever, suffering is just suffering. And it never ends. That That is the life and the eternity of an unbeliever, one who does not believe in the definite plan of God to send Jesus Christ to the cross to die for sinners. For the unbeliever, it's just suffering. And it will never end. For the believer... In Jesus Christ, suffering has a purpose. To refine our faith, to make us like Jesus Christ, and one day the suffering ends. Praise God. I don't understand all of his plan. We don't understand all of his plan. We're not pretending to understand everything that's happening or everything that God is doing. Let's not pretend that. But we know because, Jesus, because God sent his son to the cross that God ordains suffering, God ordains evil for good purposes. Even good purposes for us as his people. And to live in that is to live in a very secure place. You're, you don't get to be God there. But you get to sit within God, within the, the, the care and the love and the provision of God for those who trust in Jesus Christ. We've seen the, the God-ordained rebellion against God's king. Next we see a faith-filled response from a suffering king. A faith-filled response from a suffering king. Pick up in verse, in verse 13. Verse 13. Let's read through verse 23. It says, And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. 
Then David said to all the servants and who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Carathites and all the Pelathites and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us, since I go, not know, I, go I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you. And may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. For the first time in a long time, David takes action. A lot of, a lot of what is in chapters 13 and 14 are things happening to David. Now David is doing something. He hears about Absalom. He hears about people going over to Absalom. He does something that is very merciful and very kind very wise. He leaves Jerusalem. That means Jerusalem is not going to be laid siege to. It's not going to be destroyed. He also, by leaving and going into the wilderness, going into exile, he gets to see who's going to come with him. And so he says, hey, let's, let's get out of here. Let's, let's go. And they, uh, they gather everything up and they, and they leave. And then they stop by the last house, like the last house around, the, around Jerusalem, and he's waiting, uh, David is waiting to see who's with him. What David is waiting to see who passes by, and, and there goes his, his bodyguard, kind of his paid, the paid men who are right there around David, the Carathites and the Pelathites. These are highly trained men who are right there with David. And then there come the, the Gittites. I'm trying to remember who the Gittites are. Those are people from Gath. If you know where Gath is, you know that's where Goliath is from. It is, these people are Philistines. These people are, are Gentiles. They're, they're, not, they're not native Israelites. This is somebody who at some point in time, maybe when David first became king, maybe it's later on after David conquers the, the city of Gath, but, but these men came over and started to be with David. They probably were professional soldiers, and, and they are starting to come with, with David. And David sees their leader, Ittai, and he says, what are you doing? Like, you're not, you're not a native Israelite. Your allegiance is not to me. What, what, are, you, what, are, you, what are you doing? I mean, you've, you've only been here for a little while. I'm, I'm, I don't know where I'm going or, or, or when I'm coming back again. I, I don't know anything about what's going to happen in my future. You just came here yesterday. I can't, I can't demand your allegiance. I can't ask for your allegiance. You, you go back, and notice what David says, you go back to the king. Maybe a little bit of a test for Ittai. Who's, who's Ittai's king? Who does he recognize as the king? He says, go back. You know, that's, 
he, you, can, you can serve in his service. You can be a part of his army. You can find, you, you don't belong with me, you belong back there. And look at what Ittai says. He says, wherever my Lord the King goes, whether life or death, I'm going to serve my Lord the King. Ittai says, I don't care if I die with you or live with you. I'm going to be with you, David. I'm going to follow you. Absalom is the king's son. He is the prince, a native Israelite, along with a lot of other native Israelites who are going along against David. Ittai is a Philistine. He is, the, he is from the people who are the, the, the epitome or the, 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 the curse word of who are the enemies of the Israelites. But he says, I'm with you, David. I'll go where you go. Your people will be my people. I'm going to serve you in death or in life. Reminds me of Matthew 8, story of the centurion. The centurion is a Roman, a Roman soldier, comes to Jesus and says, I've got a servant at home who's sick. You come heal him. Jesus moves to go to the centurion's house, which was something that Jews didn't do. They didn't go into Gentile houses. And go into Roman houses, and the centurion says, no, 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 no. I speak to a man, and he does what I tell him to do. And so I know, as a man who is under authority and a man who is in authority, that you have the authority to say, my servant is healed. You don't even have to come in my house. And David turns around and he looks at everybody among all these native Israelites, among all these native Jews who are either following Jesus because they're hoping that he will do some kind of uh, miracle or because they are trying to find some reason to crucify him. He looks around to them, at them and says, I haven't found faith like this in all Israel. That's the kind of faith that Ittai is demonstrating. He's not a native-born Israelite. He's not somebody you expect to follow David. He's not the kind of person you expect to trust in Jesus. But this is what faith looks like. This is what devotion to Jesus Christ looks like. Jesus says, to follow me, to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross and deny yourself and follow me. You have to be ready to say, Live or die, I'm with Jesus. That's a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's also, what Ittai is, is demonstrating is also God's faithfulness to David. David, David, what can he expect? Can he expect that God is going to take care of him, that God is going to show up? Well, in fact, in a lot of ways, he does expect that. He is trusting God. And God is providing for him. In, in, all of this, in all of this crisis, in all of this, in all of these things that are going wrong, all of these things are David's doing to some extent. God said, here's a faithful friend. Here's somebody to be with you. Here's somebody who is faithful to you. God says to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And sometimes I will never leave you nor forsake you shows up in the form of Ittai and says, no, I'm, I'm going to go with you, brother. 
I'm going to go with you wherever you have to go. I'm going to go with you. You see the kind of, kind of people that God is providing for David. Now pick up this whole section here. It's kind of like uh, the people that you meet on your way to exile. You know, the people that you meet on your way to the wilderness. It's where David, who does David meet? You pick up in, in verse 24. And it says, and Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, and uh, bearing the ark of the covenant of God, they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back, and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I'll wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. Well, Zadok and Abiathar are the priests. And they come out, and they, they join. David is standing there waiting for everybody to pass by. And Zadok and Abiathar stand with him. And they bring the ark. Now, the ark is this wooden, gold-plated box that carries in it the covenantal regulations, the covenantal circumstances, the, the, the way that Israel is going to relate to God, the Ten Commandments. This is how we're going to relate to one another. It's also the symbol of God's presence with his people. It had been used in, at the beginning of 1 Samuel as kind of like a, like a lucky charm. Hey, let's carry, the, let's carry the ark out with us, and that ensures that we'll win the battle. David says, no, no, I'm not going to use the ark like that. God, is, God cannot be, you recognize the complete flip from the way that, say, Eli's sons Use it at the beginning of Samuel. At the beginning of Samuel, they said, hey, let's take it out into the battle. We're going to manipulate God. We're going to control God, and God's going to give us victory. David says, you take it back to Jerusalem. I'm not going to try and manipulate God. I don't control God. If God sees fit to bring me back to Jerusalem to see the ark and to be in God's presence again, so be it. If he doesn't, let him do what seems good to me, to him. Let God do what seems good to him. Rec- the recognition of God's freedom to do whatever God wants to do. Is that the way you think about God? Can't, people, people are sometimes thinking of a way to manipulate God, to make God do what he wants them to do. Yes, I will believe in God if God does what I want. David says, God can do with me whatever he wants. You understand the difference in the concept, the conception of what faith is? Genuine faith says, God, command what you will. And give what you command. Tell me to go wherever you want me to go. I'll go, I'll go. God, do with me whatever you want, want to do with me. Whatever, whatever station, whatever assignment, whatever, whatever you want me to do, wherever you put me, that's what I'll do. If David, they, I don't think that David is saying, hey, I'm okay being disconnected from God. 
but he's saying, if I live the rest of my life, uh, the, the rest of my life out here in the wilderness without God, I still know, I still trust God. So he sends them back, and now then a lot of people conceive of being submitted to God's will this way as a, a, a form of apathy and actionlessness. That is, if I, if I submit myself to God's will and God can do whatever he wants to do, that means that I sit back and do nothing. Well, that's not what David does. David sets up a spy ring inside Jerusalem. Tells Zadok and Abiathar, you guys, go back. Go back, take your sons, and you guys are going to be my inside informants. You guys are going to be my, my double O's inside Jerusalem sending information out to me. See, that's the, the, the belief in the meticulous providence of God, the meticulous control that God has over every little thing, every bird that falls from the air, every hair in your head. God, meticulous control over every little thing does not mean I don't do anything. For David, it means taking action, trusting God and taking action. And then David meets somebody else. So pick up in verse 30. It says, But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai, the archite, came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, if you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past. So now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the, the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priest with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priest. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. So David is, is walking up the ascent to the Mount of Olives. He's weeping with the people. He's, he's barefoot. It's a sign of mourning. It's a sign, of, a sign of, of, of lamentation. He's got all these people with him who are also covering their heads, and, and they're also weeping. And then David hears terrible news. Ahithophel, the man who knows how to do everything, the man who surely knows how to defeat David if he's given the chance. Ahithophel is with Absalom. And then David prays right then, O oh God, Please turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. I want you to see this dynamic in prayer. The Bible says God knows what we need even before we pray it. God knows what we need before we even ask. That must be the case here. David, David is on his way up. David prays in order for Hushai to catch him. Hushai must have already been on his way to David. God knows, what before, God knows what we need before we even ask. And at the same time, God provided an answer after David asked. Solves a lot of prayer problems for me. 
because it tells me that when God says, ask and you'll receive, I believe I can ask and I'll receive. And I can also know that it doesn't matter how much time had to, what, what had to happen in the past for my answer to be, my, my prayer to be answered here, it doesn't matter. God already knew what I needed before I asked. But he has ordained or determined or prescribed or told us that we will receive after we ask. After we depend upon God. After we are filled with a faith-filled response toward God in prayer. And that's what David has. God, I believe in you. I trust you. Please, God, hear my prayer. Turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And that's when God answers his prayer. Hushai shows up. Hushai is the, the friend of the king. That doesn't mean just like his buddy that he hung out with. It probably means like his, his confidant, his counselor, his, his right-hand man, his chief of staff kind of guy. And Hushai shows up and David says to Hushai, you'll be a burden if you go with me. You go back and you try to counter whatever Hithophel says. You try to work for me there. See the way that God is working all things out. In the middle of this problem, you know, God, God is not actionless. God is, God is moving for you. In the middle of your circumstances, in the middle of your hard times, when you don't see it, who could, who, how could David even see any of this ca- coming? How could he even think that this might happen? He didn't say, God, please send Hushai. God, please send, he just said, God, please help me. Hithophel's against me, you be against Ahithophel. And God answers. God's going to answer our prayers. Will God help me? The answer is yes, God will help me. If I humble myself before God, God will help me. Now then, we kind of see this turn from David's friends to David's enemies. He's got these faithful friends, now he has the, uh, these opportunistic enemies and all through there's this faith-filled response of David so pick up in chapter 16 uh, read verses 1 through 4 it says when David had passed a little beyond the summit Ziba the servant of Mephibosheth met him with a couple of donkeys saddled bearing 200 loaves of bread 100 bunches of raisins uh, 100 of summer fruits and a skin of wine and the king said to Ziba why have you brought these Ziba answered The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. Uh, Ziba is from the house of Saul. He used to be Saul's servant. He shows up there with David, and he's got, he's got a bunch of bread. He's got a bunch of raisins. He's got a bunch of fruit. He's got, a, he's got some wine. He's got donkeys for people to ride. Now, nobody from Saul's house had ever been on David's side. So the fact that Ziba shows up, you can see that David is maybe not so trusting in Ziba. What, what, are, you, what are you doing here? Listen, you are not the person I expected to see on the road out of Jerusalem. But you got to think of it, how Ziba is kind of hedging his bets. 
So he maybe has an, has an idea that David's going to come back. So, hey, let me get, get in good with this administration. You know, might, might be back one day. Let me, let, me, let me give a little bit. And, by the way, this is still, even though this is, this is not a good picture here, God is providing for David here. But he says, hey, let me, let me, uh, let me get in good with, with David. But then you also see Ziba doesn't go with David. Ziba, Ziba is one of the ones who meets David on the way back, and, and, uh, and he's not with David. So he can go back and he can say, hey, I'm, I'm kind of on Absalom's side too. If it turns out, turns out that the bread is buttered on the Absalom side, that's the side I'm going to be on. Well, the one person in Saul's house who might have had a good reason for going with David was Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son. He was somebody that David had basically adopted into his household to eat at David's table. He had given Mephibosheth back all his inheritance. And he says, where's Mephibosheth? And he says, Ziba says, yo, Mephibosheth. He thought, hey, maybe this is the day I'll get to be king. Now, this is kind of ridiculous. Nobody would ever follow Mephibosheth, who was lame in his feet. They would never follow him as king. But this is the story that Ziba has. Maybe Ziba's trying to think on his feet, and he comes up with a pretty poor lie, but it's enough for David. And David, like he does in so many places in these chapters, he makes a bad judgment. He says, whatever belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours, Ziba. David didn't have to say that. And, and why do you even have this kind of mixture? You know, this is real, this is real life. This is David making some, some good judgments, some good decisions. And David here is making a bad judgment. All, all the time, there are people trying to trick you. In your suffering, there's always going to be somebody who's going to try and make, make something out of your problems. Many of our problems, the way that they are exacerbated, is by someone saying, hey, I'll come and help you with your problem, when in fact what they're really going to do is make your problems worse. That's kind of what Ziba's doing here. Now then you see the last, you see the last man that David meets. They come in verse 5. It says, when King David came to Baharim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually, and he threw stones at David, and all the servants of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said, as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David. Who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road. Washamay went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. 
and there he refreshed himself. It's another guy from the house of Saul, and he comes out, and he starts to curse David, starts to throw rocks at David, uh, starts to talk about David being a, a man of blood. Now, on the one hand, he's wrong. Uh, David had no part in the killing of Saul or any of Saul's sons, but at the same time, David had murdered Uriah the Hittite. So there's kind of a, what, what Shimei is doing is wrong. You don't go out and curse God's anointed. God anointed David to be the king. If you go out and you curse God's king, that's going to be bad for you. It's going to be bad for Absalom. You see the way Absalom dies? It's bad for Absalom. You see the way what happens to Shimei later? It's bad for Shimei. It's bad for all who curse God's king. And so it's going to be bad for Shimei. In fact, it's bad for Shimei because David is surrounded by all of his mighty men. These are, you know, kind of like the Navy SEALs in, in David's, David's army. These are men who have killed hundreds of men by themselves with, you know, whatever they happen to pick up off the ground. And one of them is Abishai. Abishai, remember, if you've traced the character, this character named Joab, Abishai is Joab's brother. And Abishai says, why do you think they got cursed that day? You want me to go take his head off? And Abishai is a man who is not just talking. Abishai is a man who has taken many heads off. He says, hey, you want, me, you want me to go take that guy's head off? And then David says, what do I have to do with you sons of Zeruiah? Abishai, Joab. Joab, had been, Joab was a guy who often resorted to violence, often turned to personal vengeance. He was always ready to, Joab and Abishai are guys who are always ready to take somebody's head off. Do you know what? When you start to talk to people and start to tell them about your problems, there's always going to be somebody who's willing to tell you, you know what? We should just go take their heads off. There's always, there's always going to be somebody like Absalom or Abishai who says, you know what? You're right. You know what? You ought, to, you ought to go do something about that. You ought to retaliate. You ought to get some vengeance. You ought to go after them. There's always somebody to tell you that. Sometimes we go looking for that person to tell us that. We go to the first person and they tell us, oh, you know, I think you, think you ought to be patient. I think you ought to be, think you ought to be wise. I think you ought to be careful here. I think, I, think you ought to, I think you ought to not strike back. You ought not retaliate. And then you go, that's not what I wanted to hear. So you go and you find somebody until they tell you, go take their head off. You want me to go take their head off for, for you? There's always somebody to tell you to do that. There's always somebody. Those are not the people who are your friends. They're not your friends. They're not trying to help you. Yes, they'll give you a listening ear, and yes, they'll tell you what you want to hear. They're not your friends. David says, this man's from God. You know, it's real humility when you can recognize that God sends enemies into your life to make you more like Jesus Christ. To teach you humility. It, it's, it's real humility when you hear what your enemies say about you and you say, you know, they're not saying that from a good heart. They're not, they're not trying to help me. But I can take what they're, hear, they're saying and I can humble myself before God. And what David even says about Shimei, how much, how much more does that even apply to Absalom? He's saying Shimei is from God sent to curse me. He could just as easily be saying, what Absalom is doing 
is from God. If my son is against me, how much more should this son of Saul curse me? He humbles himself before God and says, this is from God. And evidently, I mean, this guy maybe like a ridge, which is not uncommon from what I understand from, from the Palestinian region. you got these ridges. I mean, he could just run along the road and just fling dust and curse and throw stones at David. Who knows how long? And you know what? They're tired when they get to the end. But David says, maybe God will look on my affliction. Or maybe he will look on the wrong that's being done to me. Or I, I think even the best reading is, God will look on my iniquity and he'll see the way that I am suffering in it and he'll see the way I'm responding to it. God will have mercy on me. God opposes the proud. This is Peter, this is James, this is Proverbs. Something you should never forget. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. When David, in his pride, saw a forbidden woman, and he reached out, and he took her. God was against him. When David conspired with Joab to murder Uriah the Hittite, that woman's husband, God was against him. God opposes the proud, but God gives grace to the humble. When you humble yourselves before God, God is ready to help you. When you present your need to God, God is near you to help you. God, God responds to humility. Humble yourselves before God, and God is ready to help you. God, remember who Jesus says is blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That's the humble. The ones, who, the ones who are not lifting up their, their spiritual prowess or their spiritual achievements. It's the humble. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn. David's going up, this, going up this mountain. He is mourning. He's mourning over what's happening to him, knowing that what, what's happening to him is because of his sin. He's mourning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, or blessed are the gentle, not the Absaloms, the selfish, the ambitious, the vain, the violent, not the, not, the, not the Abishais who are ready to take somebody's head off. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Who does Jesus Christ call Blessed calls those like David in this chapter who are humble, who humble themselves before God. In the face of sin, in the face of all the consequences of sin, they say, God, help me. God, whatever you want to do with me, for me, please help me. God, my life is in your hands. God, help me. I trust you. You are my help. You are my strength. You are my shield. You are my refuge. You wonder where David gets the language in the Psalms? It's because this is the life he lived, and he shows us how to have faith in God. 
This is what faith looks like. Humble yourselves. Trust in Jesus Christ. The way that we know that Jesus Christ is for those who humble themselves is because Jesus taught us that God is for those who humble themselves. And he secured it for us by dying on the cross for us. Do you know how we know that God is our help when we are suffering? Even though we're sinners? It's because while we were still ungodly, Christ died for us. We know how to relate to God. And it's just saying, with empty hands, God, I come to you. Christ is all my righteousness. You are all my hope. God, my life is in your hands. I will, I will, go, I will go wherever Jesus wants me to go. I'll go wherever you command. I will, I will do the boring and the mundane. I'll do the, I'll do the dangerous and the death-defying. It doesn't matter. God, I will do whatever you want. I'm yours. That's faith. That is rich, genuine faith. I pray that you'll have it. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Be ready to go where he goes. To suffer where he suffers. So that we might receive an inheritance with him that never fades, that never ends. Let's pray together. Father, We confess and praise your, your power that in your freedom you do whatever you want to do. And none can hold back your hand or say, what are you, what are you doing? And that in all you do, you are righteous, you are good, you are loving, you are merciful. You are God of steadfast love and mercy who forgives sin and yet does not let the wicked go unpunished. Thank you for the resolution of your justice and your mercy for us in the death of Jesus Christ. Please help us to believe in your goodness demonstrated through him, through his death, through your giving of him. In all of our wilderness wanderings and all of our suffering and all of our exile and all of all of the things that we will face in this life grant that we would find friends grant that we would even learn from enemies most of all grant that we would learn and know humility that we would walk before you humbly walk in your ways all our lives in Jesus name we pray amen